everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have San Francisco public defender Mano Raju, who probably has had as crazy an 18-month period as anyone in this crazy world. Uh, he took over last spring when his predecessor, the venerated Jeff Adachi, suddenly passed away. And this year he has had to deal with all sorts of challenges from COVID to social upheaval and, of course, tumultuous elections. So welcome to our show, Mano. Thank you, David. It's great to be here talking with you as always. So one thing I wanted to kind of start with, uh, because, um, and this kind of brought the two of us together uh, and, and we worked together uh, a bit in San Francisco on one of our court watch projects. But uh, as somebody who's not an attorney, I was actually really inspired uh, by Jeff Adachi when I watched him in San Francisco now almost 10 years ago. Um, it, it really framed my mindset as to what was really possible I didn't feel all alone in the criminal justice realm like I had in my county uh, where I was kind of ostracized by uh, a lot of the offices here. And um, it, it really kind of changed my mindset about what could happen. Uh, and, and I know he plays a huge role, of course, in your life um, as uh, as somebody who hired you and 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 promoted you. So, um, kind of wanted to start there um, and, and see what your thoughts about what it was like uh, to step into the shoes of somebody who was really kind of a living legend in your field. Yeah. Uh, th- thank you for that question. Um, yeah, you know, Jeff is a living legend, and it's a complete total honor uh to be able to you know take over the position that he had before uh and jeff in in so many ways is a role model for me because uh one thing we share is just an absolute obsession with the art of uh, jury trials um he uh like me believes and believed that you know it's really important that we have public defenders who are willing to leave no stone unturned leave no motion unfiled and leave no, um, you know, bit of effort, uh, you know, unfulfilled in preparing the best defense possible for our clients. And with the reality is if you're doing that, then uh, first of all, you're more likely to, much more likely to have a just outcome in trial. But also if you do end up resolving the case, 
for something short of trial, it's not based on any lack of preparation, but it's based on, you know, with the full efforts that you've done, we are advising your clients, this is, this is the correct decision in this case. Um, but not only that, he, you know, was someone who was really committed to the community. And we start, he started the magic programs. We had the Mo magic program uh, based on the Fillmore. We have the B magic program uh, that's based in the Bayview. And that idea of, you know, being a strong litigation office focused on an aggressive trial practice, but also being connected to the community is something that really sold me uh, when I came here from Contra Costa, which is also a very strong office. But that really connection to the community is one of the reasons I wanted to work in San Francisco. And, you know, when I'm out there in the community, there's, you know, so many people who are like, oh, of course, Jeff, you know, and they, they know him by his first name. And he's got that connection to people uh, in community and, of course, um, in the courthouse. Uh, and he's someone that really I, you know, just looked up to and, and his drive and passion. Um, and, and you know, as you in your field, um, you know, he really believed it's important that we message what's happening and use media, whether it's, uh, you know, articles in newspapers or videos or, or full-length movies. Uh, you know, it's unfortunately so much of the story of the criminal legal system has been told from the vantage point of the police or the prosecution. And it's really imperative that we get the other side out. And I think that's something that he was committed to. And frankly, I've, I've been really impressed with you in, in your court watch program and how you've managed to you know, show another side of the system that's so often missing from the public view. And I think that's a really important point because one of the things that, that we see is that um, you know a lot of public defenders do a good job and uh, they fight for their client, which is obviously their first priority. But if you don't share that story with the broader public, people don't realize exactly what's going on in the system itself. And mm -hmm. while, you know, it's true that public defenders are fighting the system one case at a time, there is a system there. And if mm -hmm. you can't get the message out to the public, uh, the, the public doesn't really know what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is, um, you know, it may, I think it used to be the case that there may have been, you know, 10, 15 reporters covering 850 Brian, but that's not the case anymore. And um, it's, there's just so many aspects of the system that are misunderstood. I mean, we just had a case where a client of ours was, a felony client of ours was accused of a carjacking. Um, and it, it ended up being a, uh, just a misunderstanding. He was trying to jump his car and an individual who didn't speak English stopped because the client was waving over people. And, you know, they started that process of jumping the car and because the client who didn't understand, uh, an immigrant client who didn't understand English got afraid. He said, oh, is something else going on? Just took off, started sprinting. Now our client's sitting there next to a car that he believes, you know, he knows the police are about to show up and they're going to accuse him of doing something. He, in, 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 fear starts driving away with the car because he doesn't want to be there, not because he wanted to take the car initially, but because he's um, afraid that the police are going to accuse him of uh, stealing something he didn't. And um, the jury ended up understanding that and voting not guilty because of the full context. And we were able to bring in video that showed the, he had, this wasn't the first person he was trying to wave down. He was trying to wave other people down. And initially the prosecution had only provided one of the videos, but also we, call it 
community expert to explain, listen, in this neighborhood where he's from, he's not thinking if he calls the police that they're going to believe him. It's understandable for him to think he's not going, and they're not going to believe him, and they're going to accuse him of, you know, a very serious felony carjacking, which is a strike and carries years in prison. But another piece of that story that's important for people to get out, like the client himself didn't feel like um, the jury's going to really understand and listen to his story. So he was willing to say, hey, can, will they let me plead to a strike to just, if I can do too much time more? And the prosecution in this case actually fortunately wasn't willing to do that, which then forced us to go to trial, which was great because he was able to get on the stand, tell his story. The community expert was able to come in and explain some things to that jury, and they come out, and the 12 jurors all agreed he was not guilty. And I think that 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 dynamic of the system, where because of the you know astronomical the charging power of the prosecution and the number amount of time people are looking at, the people are actually willing to plead guilty to things they're not guilty of. That happens day in and day out, every day across the country, and more people need to understand that that that's a problem that it has you know, ripple effect on individuals' lives and, and that of their family members. And one of the things that I've always been impressed with, with your office, and I, I, I had the privilege of watching, you know, unfortunately only about nine months of uh, trials before COVID hit, but, mm-hmm. you know, you guys fight everything to the mat from bail all the way all the way through and mm-hmm. and a lot of offices you know they have good attorneys but they don't have that fighting mentality mm-hmm. right no absolutely and that's something that we look for when we're hiring people we want people who you know with um you know uh respectfully uh will fight though i mean we're gonna we're gonna do we have an obligation to provide zealous advocacy and we want people who relish in having that obligation and who really do want to file every motion who do want to be in court fighting who do want to be litigating and you know one thing that jeff uh was started doing which is instrumental is started keeping track of that like how many of these kind of motions are you filing are you filing enough motions to suppress are you filing enough uh what's called a 995 motion which is if the uh, judge uh bounced someone over or kept kept a charge going past the preliminary hearing, are you filing motions to challenge that? Are you aggressively going to trial and really starting to, you know, make sure that you're keeping track and staying on your staying on edge and and, and that you're willing to fight. Uh, and, and I think when you do that, more just results happen. And frankly, it's a much better job. I mean, it's really exhilarating to be in court delivering that closing argument, you know, cross-examining that police officer on a motion to suppress and really getting in the mix. And those are the kind of people that we look for. And it, and it goes across the board from attorneys to social workers, to policy people, to um, IT paralegals, to investigators, we're all, we want people with that uh, fighting spirit. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things I think I would credit Jeff with is that for for, you know, years or eons or even now, um, you know, there is this notion of the public defender as being kind of almost like a bean counter and, and you get stuck in the system, you don't have any money, you get stuck with a public defender and you end up getting convicted and go to prison. And 
Jeff kind of turned that around and, and created this kind of pride factor. And, uh, you know, I was uh, reading like Jonathan Rappa's book and, uh, um, you know, Gideon's Promise and all all of those uh, those movements really come out of the work that, that Jeff started to establish of, you know, this advocacy and, and this role. And, you know, in a lot of the counties that we cover, we see public defenders are really on the front lines. And in a lot of cases, they're, you know, they give better advocacy and representation than some of the really expensive uh, private ones. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, and I, I credit Jeff with sort of with being a big contributor to the public defender movement. And I think John Rapping, you know, he sees and John Rapping is a good friend. He also talks about, um, you know, the modern civil rights movement really does take place in criminal courthouses in a lot of ways, or at least it's an important part of the modern civil rights movement. When we see the this sort of havoc that's wreaked on families because of the criminal legal system that we currently have. So I think it's really important that public defenders take pride in their work and that we continue to evolve the field and keep on taking steps to provide an even higher level of representation. So let me ask you this because, uh, you know, we just had this monumental election and it seems like, mm-hmm. you know, it, I, I don't know about you, but it seems like every single presidential election I've ever been following, and I think I've been following them really closely for 30 years now, uh, they always say, oh, you know, this is really important, and, uh, you know, th- this is a crucial election. And all of them kind of pale in comparison to the last one that we went through. I mean, you know, you know, wh- whatever you think about the candidates, the very fact that we had like over 160 million people participating in an election is like this monumental victory, I think, for for democracy, even, you know, if it's democracy under threat. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on uh, on all that and what it means for for the criminal legal system? Well, I, I think it's important that we, first of all, celebrate the fact that uh, you know, we got the soon-to-be previous president uh, out of office and that he was voted out um, despite, you know, the challenges to voting uh, around the country. And I think it's also important that we recognize that, you know, I think that without the Black Lives Matter movement, this may not have happened. Um, and after George Floyd's uh, tragic murder, the Black Lives Matter movement took it up to even another notch to the point where, you know, there were just even at the beginning of uh, shelter in place, like marches in the streets. Uh, I was on conference calls internationally. This really energized uh, people working in this area in, in multiple countries around the world. And then people like Stacey Abrams also capitalized on, and, you know, we got people registered and people came out and voted, uh, brown and black people. And that really transformed this country and, you know, got him out of office. And I think we really need to celebrate that. At the same time, now it's important for that to be recognized and the impact of the criminal legal system on immigrant communities, on black communities, on brown communities in this country has been devastating. And it's really important at this point that we bring about changes, um, you know, uh, Kamala Harris was a former district attorney, but she has a 
better understanding of the system, certainly, than previous people who have been in that office. And, and uh, President like Biden uh, was a public defender for some period of time. So there's certainly that understanding. But now I think it's really important that we seize the moment and really push for the changes that we need to see both on a local, statewide, and national level. Um, I think it's really important that we also continue to change the perception of what a public defender's office is. I think of us as a public safety office. And traditionally, people, the public has thought of, you know, probation or police departments or district attorney's offices, uh, sheriff, uh, police as public safety. But the reason I believe we're a public safety office is there's no one else in the system that's going to form that relationship with someone who's being accused of a crime or someone who's incarcerated as much as we are. Um, in our office, we require the attorneys to meet with um, people who are accused within the first couple of days of the arraignment. We often have another meeting prior to the arraignment. I've also made it a requirement that all of our felony attorneys communicate with a family or a community member of the client within uh, the first several days of the um, the attorney-client relationship that's formed. And we also have social workers and paralegals who also will connect with clients. But when I believe that when someone truly feels seen, feels that someone fought for them, truly feels heard, that is more likely to be a positive springboard in their life, regardless of the legal outcome. We're going to work for the best legal outcome in their case. Um, but after that, where does that individual go? And do they really feel heard? And, and I feel like that there'd be more investment in, say, public defender social workers, because we already have that relationship. We already have all that knowledge, that insight into the individual and what may have brought them to be arrested and brought into the system. And therefore, we're more likely to know what the solution can be for that person so they don't get brought into the system again, whether it's more educational support, whether it's a drug rehabilitation program, whether it's uh, employment opportunities, whether it's um, trying to secure housing, uh, a combination of all of those things. Um, you know, a three-month plan, a, a six-month plan, whatever that is. We're someone who's really, really committed. The last person who wants to see someone fall back into the system is a public defender. Is someone from our office. So we're really committed to seeing that person thrive. And when someone's actually, you know, moving in the direction of thriving or addressing some of the underlying issues that brought them into the system, <clears throat> there's much less likely to be the possibility of an incident that might lead to another arrest. And there's much greater impact and on and on public safety. So I think it's really important that, you know, funds be directed to public defenders office so we can provide that wraparound, uh, both litigation and care for the client, um, because that's really the path to um, communities thriving and also to ensuring more public safety. And kind of connecting this back to the election, I, I mean, how do you see that cause being advanced by what took place on November 3rd? I think one is to capitalize on the momentum that's also that's already in place because so many people were um, drawn to that uh, to that political moment and now directing that locally, first of all, into making sure that resources are put into services are put into uh, restorative justice, are put into public defender's offices rather than into incarceration and, and, and more traditional law enforcement efforts. So I think to capitalize on the energy 
that's the first thing. But there's so many different things. In San Francisco, for example, we were working on a um, – I had an idea of a Just Juries project because a lot of people end up not being able to serve on a jury for economic reasons. In a city like San Francisco, there's no reason that we should have people hardshipping off of juries for financial reasons when we have this much wealth in the city. So we're, I put forward an initiative and we have the other partners on board to uh, potentially fund people who would otherwise financially hardship off so they could be on juries. And that can be something that leads to um, more diversity on juries and therefore more just outcomes. Another thing is we just passed a bill and um, the bill was signed by the, the governor um, regarding probation terms and for the default for most misdemeanors being one year of probation and the default for felonies being two years of probation. This is something I testified for a couple of times in Sacramento. And that, you know, to some people may not seem like a big deal, but that's a massive change in the system for people to be able to get off probation earlier, get their records expunged, and then hopefully have an opportunity to seek gainful employment without that, um, you know, uh, stigma of having, uh, having, being on probation. So to work on those micro, those small, those changes that are substantive, both locally and statewide, is the type of energy that we need. And we need to take the energy that went into electing um, a president like the vice president and then direct that um, in other areas also for real substantial reform. Now, did you have the opportunity to uh, work in San Francisco when Kamala Harris was the DA? Yes, when Kamala Harris was the district attorney, I was the I was a line deputy here. So I was directly working on the line during the time that she was the district attorney. And so do you think that she has evolved uh, since that time in terms of her outlook on the system? I, well, I think that my view is, I mean, as a public defender, I have to think that all people are capable of, you know, reflecting on what they've done and what they've seen and, and, um, and moving in a more positive direction. Uh, during the time that uh, Kamala Harris was the district attorney in San Francisco, you know, I, I the number of, for example, by bus cases, that we dealt with in San Francisco was was really out of control. I mean, the number of police officers who would be involved in literally the sale of sometimes, you know, a tenth of a gram of crack, it was ridiculous. There'd be, you know, one person doing the buy, another person doing the rest, another person observing it, another person walking the drugs to the crime, to the uh, laboratory, another person walking the drugs back from the laboratory, another person showing up in court uh, to testify at the preliminary hearing, getting a slip, that the hearing will go to the afternoon, so they get their three hours of overtime and come back. I mean, it was a colossal waste of money, uh, resources, and you know, really didn't impact um, the uh, drug trade in the way in the way it was designed to. But ended up sweeping a lot of people into into jail and, and sometimes prison. Um, there was that, and there was also, you know, in my opinion, sort of a little bit too much of a rigid view on certain cases, like for certain offenses, prison is, was just automatic without looking at some of the, uh, the particularities of the case or the individual who was being charged, which I think leads to a more healthy environment. 
having said that, I do think that there's been way more awareness now of the problems with the system. I think the Black Lives Matter movement has had a lot to do with that. I think the public defender movement has had a lot to do with that. And um, I think the immigrants' rights movement has had a lot to do with that. I think she's capable of hearing that and hopefully, and also by listening to people involved in those struggles for a number of years, by listening to system-impacted people, um, capable of hearing that and hopefully moving things in, in a more positive direction. But that's only going to happen if we have all those voices at the table um, who are the, the voices of those impacted and those working for those who have been most impacted for years. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. So back in 2009, um, I got a chance to interview uh, Kamala um, when she was running for the AG. I drove down to uh, Starbucks in San Francisco, and I was literally in and out of there in 10 minutes. Uh, you know, uh, she had like one-line answers to my criminal justice questions, and I walked away very unimpressed. In fact, the person I was really impressed with was Ted Lieu, who's now a congressman down in Southern California. But she ended up, you know, winning uh, the uh, AG's race, and then she got appointed and became a, um, a senator. And, uh, and and so the rest is kind of history. But, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting to watch the upward trajectory of her career. That That's probably a little surreal to you as well. Yeah, it's, and you know, and also, you know, she's a Tamil American, and as am I. In fact, her, uh, what we call Sundur in Tamil, her hometown, home village, is actually only about a four-hour bus ride from from my family's um, hometown in India. So we have um, some parallels in our life, and I, and I also don't want to um, diminish the symbolic significance of a woman of color, of a black woman, of a uh, Tamil American woman, Asian American woman, uh, you know, ascending to that position. I think it's uh, hugely important uh, for people that, that that this country has gotten to the place where we can elect uh, someone from that background. Having said that, you know, the what we need now is for the impact on uh, people of color, the impact on women of color who often are carrying the burden, not just because of incarceration, but often carrying the burden uh, for families when there is a, when uh, there's another family member who's incarcerated, um, that burden needs to be lifted. And that's only going to be lifted through a real substantive change in policy and a more fair uh, criminal legal system. And I think going back to uh, to San Francisco, one of the the issues that really has always stood out to me is the disproportionate incarceration of black people in in the jails in San Francisco. And I asked the same question that I'm asking you to your counterpart in the DA's office, Chase Bodine, who used to work for uh, your office as well. Um, you know, what, what's going on there and, and, and what can be done to kind of fix that? Yeah. I mean, if you, um, and I don't know if you've done this, but, uh, if, um, we're able to, um, go into the, what's called uh, department 22, which is the, um, trial felony trial calendar 
main courtroom in San Francisco on a Friday when they call the calendar. It's a little different now because of COVID. But in the past, you'd walk into, you know, a small room with one one open toilet and a, and a sink, and there'd be about I don't know, 20, 25 people in there standing shoulder to shoulder. And you would think you're in, like, Newark, uh, New Jersey, or, or a predominantly black city. Um, and as we know, San Francisco is not. The population's around 5% African-American. But that's what it feels like when you're in there on the felony trial calendar. And, uh, you know, it's tragic. And I think that we have to examine every aspect of the system. For example, the one I just talked about with probation, like so many people will get picked up on, you know, failure to report or technical violations of probation. Or um, so we look at that, we look at over-policing, but also we're not going to uh, fix the disparities in the criminal legal system or criminal courthouse solely by analyzing things that happen in that courthouse. We have to take a step back and look at inequities in housing. We have to look at inequities in education, which now during COVID time are, are exponentially uh, larger. We have to look at inequities in employment opportunities. We have to look at environmental racism. So I think any solution has to tap into you know, all of those areas in conjunction with reforming reforms within the system. We have to look at the diversity of juries, for example, in the system and look, make sure we have ways to, to bring about more, more diverse juries. So there's, I think every aspect of the system has to be, you know, looked at with scrutiny. And we have to also look beyond uh, the criminal legal system to begin with, because it, it is tragic, uh, the fact that uh, the population in the jails in San Francisco is, has so many uh, black people in it. And it's not alone. I, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. we had this right. big controversy in my county in, in June when the public defender pointed out that uh, the jail in Yolo County was 28% black in a county that's 3% black. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the DA uh, viciously attacked her for doing so. Uh, how mm-hmm. dare you point out the truth? Uh <laughs> Right. Type of thing. Um, So so it's not like San Francisco is alone, but San Francisco really stands out. You know, that that six percent, 55 percent. I don't know if those are still the same numbers, but those were the numbers I saw maybe last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it it does stand out. And I think it's, you know, and I I give uh, credit to um, public defender Olson in, in, in your county for Tracy for drawing attention to that. And I think it is what we have to start doing. I, I think it's crucial at this moment that we are, you know, if we're going to be anti-racist, we have to call out racial disparities when we see them and we have to, you know, look at things from every, from every angle. Um, one area to look at is the type of charging decisions that are made. Um, just to bring up one example, I represented a young uh, teenager, 18 years old uh, previously, who was like walking through the woods and he had a little branch with him sees a little sees a cousin of his who's younger um like a uh, young teen on a scooter and in a responsible way he says to him, hey, what are you doing you you should be at school why are you why are you riding around the scooter and the young person said to him well uh, you're not my dad you can't tell me what to do and my client at the time like on the sort of jokingly with the branch you know, pulled it back and said, well, if I was, I'd, if I was, 
I'd, I'd hit you with this branch, you know, not intending to hit him. Unfortunately, on the backswing, he ended up scratching the kid's cheek. Um, now, in some parts of town, that would be, oh, let's call both parents and make sure everything's okay. In this is actually an example I'm trying from Contra Costa. Had that happened in another part of that county, it would have been a situation where maybe a misdemeanor solved, but probably not. Because it happened in Richmond, African American part of the county, he's charged with assault with a deadly weapon and a strike. You know, so it's really important that 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 prosecutors who have that that uh, that power really interrogate themselves to see when there's so much discretion, are we charging things in the proper way or do they need to be charged at all? Is this a situation where really they could have just been a little more like, let's get a little deeper into the story. Let's bring the two people together. Let's bring the, the, the parents together and, and talk this out and you know have a restorative justice moment. Everyone understands it was a mistake and um, from a well, well-intentioned mistake and someone who actually cared about someone going to school and keep it moving. Or is this a situation where someone has to be locked up and charged with a felony uh, strike that carries years in prison, which is what happened in that case? Um, so, and then from our end, let me say that it's super important because I'm always, you know, I'm not going to let public defenders slide too. We need to make sure we're not letting any, that we're being as anti-racist and we're not letting any sort of implicit biases or assumptions slip into our analysis, that we're not saying, oh, this this client isn't someone who can testify, or this is, you know, that we're pushing just as hard and realizing that, you know, every day of probation, every day in jail, every more serious charge is impactful and not being satisfied with um, a result or or letting any sort of implicit bias uh, filter into our, the, the impede in any way how aggressive we are in representing our clients. Um, so I think it's important for everyone to interrogate themselves and really look into, you know, what can we do to, you know, bring about more anti-racist practices into our into our daily lives and, and policies. And I like your example because a lot of times, you know, you point out the disparities and the response that people will give is, well, they're the ones committing the crime. And a lot of people don't see really uh, the nature of the system where there are a lot of charges and charging decisions that are discretionary. You know, you Mm -hmm. don't have to charge that as assault with a deadly weapon. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was talking to an intern yesterday covering a case out of Sacramento and they were charging somebody with assault with a deadly weapon because he was moving around with a shopping cart. Um, You know, it, it, Mm -hmm. it just, you know, people don't understand that. Um, you right. know, the classic example of, you know, the disparities are, are with drug charging, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So you have study after study shows that whites and blacks use drugs about the same level, maybe even tilted a little bit toward whites. Um, mm-hmm. And yet when you get into the criminal system, uh, the whites are uh, are being charged maybe 20% of the time and blacks are being charged 80% of the time. And uh, the same holds for, uh, you know, um, drug dealing uh, in addition to possession. And so that's really, you know, a huge gateway into the system. One, once you got that first charge, then mm-hmm. all of a sudden the, the game completely changes for you. Um, right. You know, uh, 
you know, all of a sudden you're not looked at as, oh, this is your first time offense. You know, we'll, we'll just give you probation. All of a sudden you, you don't qualify for all sorts of things from student loans to housing programs to jobs. You got to check that uh, checkbox on, on your application form. Everything stems from that. That, that's that's actually a wonderful point that you're making, David. Um, thank you for making that point because that's exactly the issue. Be, you know, there's that disparate treatment to begin with. Then all of a sudden, there's a justification. Well, I'm not treating uh, him, her, they disparately because they they're they're a criminal, they're a felon, they're they have this initial offense, and and then exactly the way that you're looked at because now you're on probation and now you're you know it, those things you would do perhaps put yourself in a better position or uh, where, you know, you might not, um, you might be able to move your life in a more positive direction. Those are being closed to you because as you said, you, you can't get those loans. That job that you're getting is being denied to because you have that prior. Uh, and it just goes on and on. And then if you have another, if you happen to be near something, and I tell my clients, it's like, you may get into a car and you sit down and there's something under the seat, whether that's, a gun or some drugs or something else, some contraband, guess who they're going to point the finger at, whether you knew it or not, the person with the prior. Now all of a sudden that's stacked up and then, you know, the defense attorney may be advising you, hey, I think you should testify. I know you're not guilty, but by the way, if you testify, they're going to bring in that prior that you pled to um, and because you're arrested. And again, when we talk about uh, priors, we have to also keep in mind the vast majority of convictions that we have have nothing to do with an adjudication of guilt. They have to do with someone pleading guilty just to get out of jail. Um, you know, you could be around uh, a controlled substance uh, or a drug that's been deemed illegal. Well, like three or four other people that arrest all of all of the folks. They're in jail, and people are pleading just to get out, even if what you prefer to do is actually. You no, know, I wasn't near that. I was near. The drugs, but it wasn't mine. I didn't control it. I didn't have dominion and control. I never even touched it. Um, but by the time I, you know, stay in jail, get through my preliminary hearing, wait another couple of weeks, plead not guilty, get to trial. Now I've been in for, you know, three months. And even if I go at the fastest pace and I can't do that, so I'm just going to plead guilty to get out. And that happens again, as I mentioned before, day in and day out across this country. And I think, you know, an underrated issue in the system is uh, that plea agreements allow this system uh, to perpetuate itself uh, on so many different levels. Because, first of all, you know, um, one thing that I don't think a lot of people really understand is the trial penalty. So, you know, all of a sudden you go from you know, maybe facing probation or you can get out uh, to facing time in prison if you actually take the case to trial. Uh, one of the things that I, I saw last year when I was sitting in court was uh, DAs complaining that uh, the public defenders were pushing misdemeanor cases to go to trial instead of simply taking plea agreements. And they were complaining it was clogging up the system. But to me, that's kind of, you know, the job of uh, the public defenders. They shouldn't be, uh, you know, an accessory to allowing the system to flow smoothly. They should be disruptors, right? Exactly. And if the prosecution didn't want to try the case, they shouldn't have filed the charge to begin with. And I, and I, oftentimes there's that perception, and, and 
you know, well, it's just a misdemeanor, just plead to it. And I remember one time there was a judge uh, in our county who looked, a visiting judge who looked at the DA and said, well, how many misdemeanors do you have on your record? You know, and that kind of was a nice poignant moment, but to them, to some prosecutors, well, you know, he's one of your clients, so the misdemeanor isn't a big deal, but it is a big deal. Every time you plead guilty to something, it's a big deal. And I agree that, you know, we mentioned charging decision or what I call overcharging, uh, which is a huge problem. You combine that with pretrial detention, then you combine that with the trial tax and what that and and the lack of a in most places of a fair cross section of the community sitting on juries and there's a lot of disincentive to actually push the envelope and push cases to trial. And that's one reason we sort of insist on having people with that trial client centered trial mindset that are willing to be aggressive and push cases uh, to get just outcomes because there's so much energy going the other way. I mean, it's it's really ironic in a system, you know, where you have, you know, presumption of innocence, uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, um, the supposed commitment to uh, a jury of one's peers and all of these constitutional protections uh, on the books, there's so much, you know, which is, if it works well, is actually a beautiful system. It's, there's so many people with power who are almost allergic to people exercising those rights. And, you know, you often find that the attorneys who are willing to push the envelope and, and, and push cases out the trial get, get labeled as, oh, you're being unreasonable or, oh, you're, you know, you're fighting too hard. You're not, you're not getting along with this as well as they should. But the reality is that's what our clients need. That's what they deserve. And that's what makes the system actually work. And it seems like your attorneys have the right mindset. They they view that as a badge of honor. Oh, you want to smack me? Okay, great. Uh, I'll I'll just uh, chalk up another one there. But you know, it, yeah. it is amazing. Um, you know, and, and I, I train interns all the time, so you have to kind of teach them the reality of the criminal legal system. And one of the points I make mm -hmm. is, you know, you got to watch these preliminary hearings because ninety five to ninety seven percent of these cases are going to plead out before it ever goes to trial. And so mm -hmm. people are, are giving up their constitutional right to, uh, to be innocent basically. And, mm -hmm. you know, we know from some of the work of the innocence project, you know, they found that like 15 to 20% of all of their exonerees are people that pled guilty to the crime. Mm -hmm. So they, they right. were wrongly convicted by a plea agreement. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, that that's a great point. We often only think of uh, false convictions as happening after trial, but keep in mind that, that number you gave, it really is much higher than that for the following reasons, because they're only able to do that when they get, you know, some clear proof later, maybe through DNA or something else like that, some forensic evidence that the person was innocent, right? But there are so many times where you're not going to have that after the fact. And there's a lot of people pleading guilty because they're afraid of that, of that trial tax. They're afraid of the astronomical numbers that can be uh, doled out by judges. And, and, and they're often intimidated into saying, listen, you know, you, know, you better take this 30 years oh, because you're going to get life if, you know, if that doesn't happen. And it takes a lot of 
resilience. It takes a lot of effort as a defender. It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of um, you know nourishing of that uh, confidence, uh, and it takes a tremendous amount of effort to to withstand that sort of onslaught of pressure and to and to push through and try to you know fight for that case and bring about some justice uh, in the courtroom. And often with the understanding, you may not even get fair rulings in the actual trial. So <laughs> it may be tilted against you there, but you have to somehow muster up that ability, uh, you know, get on your feet and practice and figure out how you're going to both um, generate that confidence within the client and then perform at that level to avoid that outcome. But yeah, it's it's a it's a massive, I mean, you can't understate, we, can, we cannot understate the gravity of the issue with it, with the trial text and the pressure it's put on uh, defenders and our clients uh, to, to plead guilty. So we're just about out of time here, but um, just a quick final question. I, I mean, uh, what's kind of your biggest takeaway from the first 18 months uh, on, on this part of the job? Well, I mean, let me just say, I don't, I mean, I know I ended on a, a, a note of, um, sort of pessimism about the nature of this system, but fundamentally I'm a believer in like, you know, pessimism of outlook, but optimism of spirit, because I do believe that, you know, we can make our systems better. We can, I've seen myself and my colleagues bring about great results in the courtroom with the right amount of preparation and effort um, and, and focus. So I think one takeaway is that, you know, let me just say more generally, we can make, we can make positive things happen. Uh, we just have to, you know, have the resources to do that. We need to make some policy changes. Um, but I think one of the takeaways is that, um, you know, I'm very fortunate that I uh, inherited uh, a beautiful legacy from Jeff Adachi. Um, and I'm really excited about trying to take us to the next level. I think it's um, also in the public defender's office, a lot of us are, you know, we have some sharp elbows and we are, we're aggressive across the street and that's really important, but it's also important that as an office, we really try to create the inclusive environment so people's voices can be heard and we can really bring in the multiplicity of voices that form our beautiful office in order to take us to an even higher level of uh, aggressive and zealous client and community-centered representation. And I think when you are uh, able to listen to a wide variety of voices um, and incorporate suggestions, you know, that, you know, a lot of things are really possible. So I'm really looking forward to these next chapters that we have in front of us in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Well, I want to thank you for coming on our show and uh, chatting with us about the exciting work uh, that you guys are doing. I really uh, miss going into the courts uh, in in San Francisco. It was really rewarding to get to watch. Um, well, well, let me say that we, we love having you there, David. I think the work that you're doing is so crucial, and the sort of cadre of uh, the young people that you're developing to be uh, writers and journalists to cover this is is, is such crucial work. And I think that um, you know it's going to take a lot of people. Uh, from multiple disciplines in order to change a system that has been um, really damaging to individuals and communities for a long time. And I think the work that you do is really vital. And so I, I really love that we have that collaboration. Well, thank you. Um, 
This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.